beloved, as we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the gospel according to John, the 20th chapter, beginning in the 19th verse. Let us receive the word of God. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. So I want to begin this morning by talking about the Apophthegmata Patrum. That wasn't a sneeze, I promise. I said the Apophthegmata Patrum. These are recorded sayings of a group of monks and nuns known as the Desert Mothers and Fathers. They lived in caves and mud huts, even holes they dug in the ground in the deserts of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine, sometimes in small communities but more often than not, alone. There in the desert, with the busyness of life and the clutter of consumption cleared away, they embarked on a bold endeavor, through prayer and contemplation, to live more humanely, to become, in modeling their life after Jesus, more human, and thus to become truly alive in the love of God. Now, the Apoptigmata are simply snippets of stories and parables preserved from these Abba's and Amma's own self-reflection or offered to disciples and visitors that often begin with a question. Abba, Amma, give me a word. Their responses are not theological treatises or Christian self-help one-liners. They're meant intentionally to be plain and practical, unconcerned with right belief or theology, and more often than not focused on matters of the heart. Their simple wisdom cleaves performative spirituality and self-righteous theology from the practical matters of daily discipleship. And because of this, they force us to address the ways what we profess is actually transforming our hearts and lives. 
something John Wesley might have called personal holiness or sanctification. Now, during these great 50 days, our sermon series invites, like the desert mothers and fathers, to focus our attention on the work of being and becoming alive in the way of Christ, to receive in the fullness of its power the hope of the resurrection we proclaim, to embody, not just in right belief, but in the daily rhythms of our lives, the freedom and abundance of life available to us as those who believe that Jesus is risen. So now, as we turn to the words of the living word, Jesus, and ask of them as those who traveled to the desert so long ago, give us a word. Let's open with prayer. Order our lives in your word, O God, that everything we do may bear witness to your resurrection life. Order our words in your word, O God, that everything we say may bring life into a worry-weary world desperately in need of hope. Breathe the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon all those in the sound of my voice that in this sacred space we share together, we might be transformed in the hearing of your living word, and that in that transformation might take our place in the kingdom work to which you've called us. And now may the words of this preacher, faulty and fleeting though they may be, fade into the background of the word which you have prepared for all of us this day. Amen. I want to begin this morning by acknowledging that this is a sermon about Jesus' body and our bodies and the way that they experience and express trauma. There may be moments when previous experiences of your own trauma rise to conscious awareness, so I want to encourage you to pay attention to your body. If you find yourself feeling anxious, step away or pause and take a break and know that's okay. Today's reading begins with the disciples in the throes of collective trauma. Their doors are barred in fear of what terror may yet come. Just days before they'd witnessed their rabbi ruthlessly murdered, were denied by the disappearance of his body, the familiar rhythms and rituals of mourning, and are still trying to make sense of his promised resurrection in light of everything that occurred. It's in this moment of collective trauma that a surprisingly fleshy Jesus suddenly emerges. Surprising, I say, because the doors to this kiki are certainly locked tight. He shows his wounds. He proclaims a word of peace. He breathes upon them. And it's in the revelation of his resurrected and scarred body the text tells us, that they are able to see him for who he is, able and free to rejoice in the resurrection. But Thomas, he's not there to see the wounds, to recognize what's taking place. And when he's told of what has happened, he insists that his belief will come only when he is able to touch the wounds, to run his fingers over the scars, to grasp hold of the body which held and captured all of the trauma that they shared. When Thomas arrives, we're not told whether or not he actually digs his hands into Jesus's wounds, but it's clear that Jesus gives him without reproach or shame the opportunity to. And in this moment of direct confrontation with the embodied sorrow and suffering, not just Jesus' own, but that of the entire community, Thomas is finally able to proclaim, my Lord and my God. 
finally able to see past the previous experience of trauma held in Jesus' body and certainly in his own, and into the promise, the full promise of God's resurrection power. John's gospel is the only one that makes the wounds of the resurrected Jesus quite so central to the story. Mixing the past pain and trauma of the crucifixion with the present rejoicing in and hope for resurrection. I find it fascinating here that these encounters, all of them, and their awareness of Jesus is precipitated not by his voice, not by his face, not by the words of others they've heard, but by their being able to lay eyes on, to lay hands on his wounds. John's Jesus is not a face-tuned, blemishless, social media-ready savior fresh off a few days of rejuvenating rest in the tomb. He's one that bears the marks of the cross and still lives. By these wounds, he's made known. Over the centuries, we've all heard these sermons. We've conveniently made this story primarily about Thomas's doubt. We love the image of one who must root around in the wounds of Jesus to achieve satisfaction, perhaps because we feel the need to excuse our own doubt or to satisfy ourselves with the thought that at least we've got more faith than Thomas. But this reading of the story also provides a convenient way to ignore a profoundly uncomfortable truth. Resurrection doesn't guarantee instantaneous healing. When the story is more about Thomas's spiritual faults than the wounds he insists on touching, we get to ignore that the resurrected Jesus is still scarred, still broken, both healed and healing, and that the life he offers isn't one in which our past trauma, sorrow is expunged. Instead, John's resurrection body forces us to confront how they inform, these wounds inform, and are a part of Jesus' resurrection life. Healing cannot be separated from suffering. Resurrection cannot be separated from death. Now, I need to pause here and be clear that this is not a sermon about redemptive suffering. As a pastor, I wholeheartedly reject the idea that suffering is somehow a necessary God-ordained part of the way that we grow in faith or love of God and one another. This is bad theology. No tea, no shade, Paul, but maybe just a little. And this theology is the root of so many excuses for the continued mass incarceration, torture, and violence perpetuated against our black and brown siblings, too often one which traps women in cycles of abuse and neglect in the name of faithfulness, and that is still regularly used against my queer siblings as they are subjected to theologies of self-loathing and the horrors of conversion therapy. No, This is not about redemptive suffering. But I do believe that our willingness to so quickly erase Jesus' wounds and focus solely on Thomas's doubt is dangerous. The wounds and the pain they embody can't be overlooked. For far too often, people have been taught a comparative, a, a theology of comparative suffering, where good Christians are taught to minimize their own pain, sorrow, loss, or trauma, or the suffering of others, because clearly someone out there has it worse than you. We're taught that our doubt, 
our disbelief, our heartache, our hurt, our wounds are an expression of faithlessness in God, that we should be focused on the blemishless resurrection body of the ghostly Jesus who comes through the door unannounced and not the wounds of the Jesus who extends his hands to Thomas, taught that these things don't get to exist in tandem with life in a post-Easter world. Recent developments in psychobiology have begun to give us a deeper understanding of how trauma impacts our brains and our bodies. And by trauma here, what I mean is any experience that causes acute anxiety, fear, rage, or grief, and that then activates our desire to fight or flee. When we have these kinds of experiences, a part of our brain, colloquially called the lizard brain, kicks into gear. And this ancient built-in defense mechanism is tied directly to our primary life systems, our heart, our lungs, our gut, and can activate them to a fight or flight response before our conscious brain is even aware we're responding. All of us, I'm sure, can remember moments of acute distress when our heart began to pound out of our chest, our breathing became shallow, our thinking muddy, our palms sweaty, and our stomachs began to churn. Evolutionarily speaking, these responses are meant to keep us alive until we can escape and then process our experience. But what happens when, like the disciples, we encounter grief we can't immediately process or explain? Or grief that is prolonged for three days or for Thomas even a week? A tomb left empty, holding more questions than answers. Night after night, spent with your door tightly barred because you're so scared of what might be on the other side. Significant or repeated experiences of trauma, as author Bessel van der Kolk writes in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, begin to alter our perception of reality. Our brains become rewired, we get stuck in a cycle of constant anxious reactivity, our lizard brains not allowing our conscious brains to fully process what it is we're experiencing. We find ourselves beginning to react with constant or continual anxiety to things that we might otherwise recognize as innocuous or inane. Phrases like, per my previous email, or can we talk? can send us into fits of rage or anxiety. News notifications or unexpected phone calls from family members can leave us panicked and breathless. Left unchecked, these trauma wounds impact nearly every aspect of our lives. The more we hold on to them, the more we don't let them heal, the more we experience them. We find ourselves stuck in cycles of self-sabotage, often in trying to prevent the threat of future trauma, inadvertently causing the very thing we fear. In real moments of panic or danger, we become unable to distinguish those who want to help from those who are trying to cause harm, leaving us isolated and constantly on guard. These repeated trauma reactions, they build a kind of new knowledge in our bodies and they change and shape in both ways conscious and unconscious, the ways we exist in and share space with others. Toxic anxiety syndrome or prolonged periods of, unanxiety, uh, prolonged periods of unabated anxiety can actually kill us 
Over time, the lizard brain's overactivation of our bodily systems can cause us to gain weight, make our hearts and arteries age abnormally, or our immune systems to fail. It's no wonder that marginalized, victimized, and disenfranchised communities die at an alarmingly higher rate than those who, like people who wear my own skin, have privilege and power that protect them. Our brains become so accustomed to our anxiety or the threat of trauma that we begin to unconsciously create entire worlds around us in which we constantly feel or create it because it's the only way we know how to live. One study comparing patients with untreated or significant past trauma to those without it found that the brains of persons with PTSD literally shut down the parts of our brain which control and help us define our sense of self in proximity to other people. In an effort to erase our past trauma, to ignore and not reach out, to lay our hands on it, our brains begin to adapt, shutting off the parts of our brain that allow us to know ourselves as alive. It's no wonder. It's no wonder it took Jesus miraculously appearing in their midst and revealing his wounds, rather than Mary's words of uh, resurrection who encountered him just before to recognize him. And that Thomas, just three days later, spends another week living in that same terror or fear. Jesus wasn't the only one wounded in the story. He's just the only one whose wounds we can see. I'm going to nerd out for a second and ask, or perhaps you already know this, uh, if you've ever read the books by J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, you know what goblins are, right? Goblins are these sneaky, burrowing creatures who are terrified of light. Under the cover of darkness, however, they leave their caves and wreak havoc on unsuspecting victims, pillaging and plundering everything they can take. I had this image of our unnamed, unhealed trauma operating a little like these goblins. These trauma goblins burrow just beneath the surface of our conscious awareness and hidden by our fear and shame about facing them begin to co-opt and corrupt our ability to distinguish between despair and hope, life and death, friend and foe. Left unchecked, they impact everyone and everything around us. They change our ability to listen and respond to others. They steal our capacity to trust and show up authentically to love and take worthwhile risks. They pillage the wealth of our relationships, our good intentions and giftedness, and in their wake often cause lasting harm to those we love. And like Pastor Ben so powerfully showed us in his prayer, they perpetuate their trauma far too often, not only in our bodies, but in the bodies of everybody around us, especially those who are most marginalized and disenfranchised. But much like Tolkien's goblins are terrified of light, of being seen, our trauma goblins lose their agency over us when exposed to the light of conscious awareness. Trauma therapists now understand that the long-term trauma in our bodies can only be dealt with in our bodies. They've begun to employ a variety of mind-body techniques like deep breathing, massage, yoga, and meditation, which allows survivors of long-term trauma and toxic anxiety to begin to understand how their trauma impacts their bodies and then learn or relearn through their bodies how it means to regain a sense of life beyond 
trauma by addressing these often unconscious bodily reactions to the trauma we carry, we're able to break its control over us. Now, perhaps this is why it took the wounded and resurrected body of Christ to break the co-opting cycle of the disciples' anxiety, fear, and self-doubt. Breathing new life and strength into bodies weary from trauma that never seemed to end, showing the wounds and all their pain and the promise that there was yet life beyond them. Maybe this is why it took Jesus extending his hands, wounds freely offered for Thomas as his own trauma misshaped and malinformed his perception of himself and others so that, so that he might in Jesus touch the source of his pain and be free from its control over his future. In her book, Resurrecting Wounds, Shelley Rambo writes that the truth of the resurrection conveyed through the symbols of Jesus' scars is that these textures, grief and joy, pain and pleasure, will always be present in life, often simultaneously. Interlaced with joy and pain, a life can be marked as holy even in all this ambiguity. Jesus, in our story today, shows us how gentle acknowledgement and awareness of our trauma helps us recognize that God is present both in the suffering and in the healing, in the doubt and in the belief. That Jesus shows up not after or before, but in the middle of all that we hold, liberating us from the lie that our past trauma and present woundedness need be all there is to our story. The wounded and resurrected Savior bears witness to the real resurrection promise, not that we'll always be okay, or skate past suffering in life through slights of hand like comparative suffering, Not that we're guaranteed some glorified, resurrected future free from all our past trauma and grief, but the freedom to see that written in the marks and scars of our past trauma, a life which guarantees that though we may experience suffering and loss, God guarantees life despite of and beyond it. Social worker and author Resma Menachem in his book on racial trauma in America, My Grandmother's Hands, notes that we tend to think of healing as something binary. Either we're broken or we're healed from that brokenness. But healing, he says, from trauma occurs over a long time and on a continuum. If Thomas teaches us nothing else, he shows us that we do not need be embarrassed or controlled by, embarrassed about or controlled by our past traumas. His reach teaches us how to reject the temptations of comparative suffering, gives us permission to be okay not being okay, to doubt, to be a hot mess express. His recognition and acclamation of the resurrection shows us that by naming our wounds, by reaching out to touch the broken and wounded places in our world, they begin to lose their power to define our experience of others in the world and shows us that in honoring our wounds, in refusing to defer or delay our recognition of trauma, we bring into focus a reality too often denied by binary models of healing, that we can be both hurt and healing, broken and being made whole, in the tomb yet still returning to life. In that way, Thomas demand to touch the wounds, to run his finger over the still fresh scars of the crucifixion isn't an act of doubt, but an experience of resurrection, 
And while Thomas may in fact offer us a lesson on doubt, he's also showing us what it means to truly come alive. I shared on Facebook recently that often I will look at my own hands, the scars on them, and notice that they remind me in the midst of all that I've experienced, I'm still alive. Pentecost will mark the 19th anniversary of the first time I ever preached and publicly acknowledged my call to ministry. And it also marks the beginning of a profound and painful internal struggle with my God-given identity as a gay man and the ordination process of a church that told me that was incompatible with Christian teaching. There have been plenty of wounds along the way, having to leave my home and family behind to be ordained in the church I felt called to, living in fear of what might happen if my partner and I uh, had a picture posted on the wrong website, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, hiding my identity from colleagues for fear it might be used against me in a court of church law. Much like looking at my hands reminds me today I am still alive. Every day I choose to name and acknowledge these wounds reminds me that I'm okay, that I am healed and still healing, that I am broken and still being made whole, that I am yet alive. As the Abbas and Amas of the desert often remark, God has a funny way of entering our most wounded, tender places and imperceptibly beginning the work of healing when we allow it. And though I'm not sure I'll ever stop fighting those old trauma goblins, by God's grace, new each day, I find fresh hope that they don't have to find what comes next. I know I don't need to enumerate for you all the ways that we are these days individually and collectively holding and bearing witness to trauma. You have news notifications on your phone for that. But I do know that it's okay to hold doubt in one hand and hope in the other. That in the light of the resurrection, your scars and wounds aren't proof of your failure or lack of capacity or worthlessness. No, they are proof you are one bad mamma jamma. You can do and survive hard things. You have already survived the worst moments of your life. No one else has ever done that and no one else ever could. Best of all, I know that in the midst of all that trauma past and all the trauma yet to come, we are accompanied by a Savior whose love allows us the grace and space to know that no matter how broken or wounded we may be, we are loved and held. And one who meets us in moments when all that trauma and its death-dealing power threatens to overwhelm or overcome us, meets us with open arms, proclaiming peace and promising that though our scars may remind us of where we've been and what we've been through, they may inform, but don't have to dictate what comes next. Maybe that's what it means to come alive in God's love. And for now, at least for me, that's resurrection enough. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.